let's dive in. We're in the book of Titus. If you guys have been here the last couple weeks, um, we've been learning about doctrine, sound doctrine, or healthy doctrine, and why what we believe matters. We've also been learning about how God gave leaders to the church. Leaders are important. We need leaders in our life who actually are good examples of godliness. We need people who who actually are shaped by the word, people who we can learn from and, and submit to because God wants us to also be healthy, mature Christians who are able to instruct others. And so the book of Titus is kind of one of these pastoral letters. It's one of those letters that's shorter and it's got all kinds of stuff going on but um, it's written by the apostle Paul and he he wrote to this guy Titus who was a pastor whom he left in Crete which is an island in Greece anyone want to just like go plant a church on an island in Greece it sounds kind of cool I'd be down for that anyone down for that an island somewhere sounds good Um, yeah so he's writing to Titus and one of his first instructions is to like appoint elders, to like start to shepherd and care for this church. You need to appoint elders. You need to actually start to foster this, this culture in the church of not just gospel doctrine, but a gospel culture where people are discipling each other and doing life with one another and loving each other, showing the one another's to each other. We've learned that we actually need people that are going to lead us and point us towards Jesus because we're all sheep. We can all go astray. And so tonight, as we start, I want to ask you a question right out the gate. Is there evidence in your life that you're saved? Is there evidence in your life that you actually know Jesus in a saving way, that you have saving faith? Let me put it another way. Does God's grace change the way you live? Like, does it it change the way you you act, does it change the things you do? I know it's kind of serious right out of the gate, but like, would, would other people look at your life and say, yeah, I think he's actually come to have a, a radical encounter with Jesus. Yeah, she's, she's met Jesus. There's stuff in her life that's different, that, that she knows, loves, and obeys Jesus. Like, is, is your salvation shaping the way you live, does that have an effect on your choices? Maybe this saved language is kind of weird language. It's kind of weird language for you. It was for me, at least, because I honestly, I grew up in a church, like kind of culture that didn't talk about um, salvation often. Like it didn't, we didn't talk about how people need to be saved or how Jesus died to save. There was just kind of a, like, aversion from that, diversion from that. Um, and so it was kind of confusing to me when I got around Christians who were talking about like when they got saved or how so-and-so just got saved or how they've been praying for their friend to be saved. And really, it wasn't until I got my face in the Bible, I had very little like exposure to the Bible until I was in college. And I started to realize like this is a just thing that's all over the New Testament. Like salvation is something that like is just all over the place. We, we were reading earlier in Ephesians 2, like, by grace you have been saved. Saved from what? I mean, I, I had to come to grips with all this stuff I'd never really thought about before, that there are people who are saved and aren't saved. I kind of thought I had always been a Christian. And so I realized you're either saved or you're not. Like, the, the Bible doesn't really have an, a third option. There's two kingdoms. You're either in the kingdom of God or you're not. You're either saved or you're not. So 
So are you saved? How do you know? Let's open up to the book of Titus. Chapter 2, we're going to be in verses 11 through 15. I'm going to read the whole passage, and then we're going to kind of just go through it piece by piece. Let me just pray for us first. Sound good? God, your word is alive. It's a lamp to our feet. It speaks to us. It corrects us, and we, we invite you to do that, to speak to us through your word. And so... Um, Help us, help us have receptive hearts. Help us to um, understand what you're saying to us. Spirit, would you open our minds? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Titus chapter 2, read with me starting verse 11. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. So it's a beautiful passage. There's a lot in there. It's really a dense little chunk of scripture. And what we first see is that it's the grace of God that has appeared in verse 11. The grace of God has appeared. Paul's talking about the incarnation of Jesus. The first appearance of Jesus is actually when he came and he came in weakness. He came as a lowly savior. He came born to lowly, poor, teenage parents. And this was the grace of God appearing in the world. God appeared in human flesh to bring salvation for all people. The grace of God has appeared and grace has a name. It's Jesus. God's grace, a helpful way of thinking about grace is unmerited favor. It's like, it's actually something we do not deserve. I think sometimes we need to remember the fact that God doesn't owe us anything. According to the Bible, like, God doesn't owe anyone anything because we've turned away from him. Like, he doesn't need to be gracious to us, but praise God that that is one of the most central things to God's character is that he's gracious, he's good. He loves to extend his grace. He has brought his grace into the world for all people. But what we've done is instead of submitting to his lordship, instead of actually loving the fact that our God is a God of grace, we, we decided to reject him. Like we, we've always been at odds with God Ever since we were born, we were born sinners. We didn't just become sinners because we sinned. Our sinful nature made us at odds with God already from the start of our life. We were reading in Ephesians 2 during worship. We were hearing that other really beautiful, gospel-rich scripture. But earlier in that part of Ephesians, we're told that we're children of wrath like the rest of mankind apart from Christ. Romans 3 says that we're 
We're people who fall short of the glory of God. Like all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We need, like we need help. We need saving. And the only being in the universe that can do anything about our problem, our sin problem, is God himself. And the message of the gospel, guys, hear me, is that God has done that. He has come to save us. He sent his son to accomplish our salvation through his life and his death and his resurrection. Like we don't just need to celebrate that one day out of the year. That's something that we need every single day. He sent his son to die for us. That's what Jesus does in his first appearance. He comes, he's despised and rejected. He comes and he gives his life as a ransom. We'll look and see later on in this passage again that, that he like gave himself up for us. Like he was, he was a sacrifice. He lives a life that fully pleases God, a life that you and me could not live. A life where he was tempted in every single way so he can relate to us. He knows us. He knows our struggles, yet he was without sin. And then he dies this excruciating death on the cross. Like the cross was this terrible, awful murder device. And God, because of his great love, because of his grace, he put himself on that cross. His body was broken for you because God's full of grace. Like, he has so much grace. He has grace that just keeps overflowing and overflowing. There's no person in this room tonight that's out the grace of God. There's nothing in your past that has made you disqualified from being a recipient of grace. And at the same time, there's no one in this room who's above needing grace. There's no one in this room who, who doesn't need grace today. All of us need grace today. And we certainly needed grace to come to Jesus and we need grace to continue with Jesus. We all need grace. There's not some other route to God. There's only one way to God and it's through his son and the grace that he offers. No amount of religious activity can earn favor with God. He offers his son completely by grace to us. It's a gift. That's actually how Paul talks about it in other places, that, that salvation is this gift of God. Like, who, who goes around saying, like, yeah, I deserve a gift today? Like, who calls their grandma and is like, hey, grandma, I know it's not my birthday, but I just really feel like I deserve a gift, you know, today. Could you give me one? Like, I don't know about you, but my grandma would be like, that sounds just really petty and selfish, and maybe you should check yourself. No one says that, but I think sometimes we actually think God owes us something. And the truth is that we're not owed anything, but again, praise God, he is gracious that he has sent his son to accomplish our salvation. He offers us the, the salvation as a gift to be received by faith. This goes on to say, bringing salvation for all people. It's not talking about the fact that 
like there's somehow just everyone's going to be in heaven someday, that salvation is just universal. You could say, really what Paul's saying is that Jesus died to save all kinds of people. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all kinds of people. One way H.B. Charles says it is, he says it's not salvation without exception. It's, like, it's not universal salvation, it's salvation without distinction. It's a salvation that's offered freely by grace and it doesn't, because it doesn't make a distinction on like class or race or gender or anything like that. It's a salvation for any and all people, for all of the world. God's giving his gift of his son, his gift of salvation to the whole world. But people must receive the gift through faith. I mean, if I brought you guys something tonight, each of you, and I put it up here and left it, it would be on you to come get it. And God is saying, I've died for you. I've done what was necessary. I've beaten sin, Satan, and death. Receive me through faith. That's our response to the gospel. That's what's necessary to receive the benefits of this gift. Look with me just for a minute, though. Again, this is not talking about, this passage, the the point in verse 11 is not talking about the extent or the scope of the atonement, okay? It's to show us that grace needs to change and challenge us, to teach us, to train us. This is the effect that it's going to have. Because God's grace has appeared bringing salvation, because you can be saved by grace and grace alone, it's going to lead to things. It's not a, the gospel isn't a get out of hell free card. Jesus cares about you. He wants you to live a holy life because you now belong to him if you're someone who has faith. Grace needs to train us. Or maybe your translation says teaching us. Teaching us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So, You could say grace kind of has this ongoing effect, right? Paul calls it training. First, there's this reality in which grace makes us hate something, renounce renounce two things. Renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Like it makes us hate our sin. Do you hate your sin? Like is there a growing hatred for sin in your life or have you become numb to the sin that you keep just stumbling in day after day? Is grace training you to take action and say no to sin? So there's two things that grace trains us to say no to, and then three things, look, that it says to say yes to, that trains us to say yes to or or do, to be upright, or sorry, self-controlled, upright, and godly. People think this is kind of actually referring to three kind of different categories. First, self-control is kind of this personal, personal thing. And then upright is relating to other people. It's how we treat other people, how we deal with conflict. And then third, godliness, how we actually live for God, how we see pleasing God throughout all of our life as important. So are you, are you training Like, are you training for godliness? Are you training to fight temptation like a saved person? 
A person saved by grace? Like not, I'm not asking are you just like trying really hard for God because God demands that you try hard in order to be pleased with you. That's not the gospel. Are you training to put up a fight against temptation because you're a person who's saved completely by grace alone? Like is, is grace the fuel for how you go about obeying and pursuing Jesus? Really, my question is kind of like, how are you trying to be a Christian? How are you trying to be godly? Because do you strive for godliness as a person who has access to the grace of God at all times throughout your entire life? Or are you training and trying like someone who's just actually only gotten grace to get in the kingdom of God, but then now God just demands that you try hard? That just leads to us honestly feeling really exhausted and, and work to the bone, and that's, that's not biblical Christianity. That's not the gospel. Like, every single day we need grace. So do you strive for godliness as this person who has the source of grace that overflows at your disposal? He's ready to give you more grace. In fact, he does So there's three things, right? There's self-control, there's upright, or maybe your translation says righteous, like right living, and then godliness. How you reflect God, how you show the world the character of God through your life and your actions. Maybe because of grace, what needs to happen in your life is actually a change tonight, a tweak in how you kind of combat temptation. Instead of being quick to gratify the desires that you have that are sinful, maybe you need to preach the gospel of grace to yourself. Maybe you need to see grace as more beautiful and more costly because it's free to you, yes, but it cost Jesus greatly. It cost him his life. It was a costly, costly thing for Jesus to be able to give you grace freely. And if, if you're struggling with sin and you're not taking radical steps to cut out things leading to temptation, I don't know if, if you truly get how big of a deal grace is, how sweet and amazing grace is. Because Jesus has called you to get serious about sin. This is how he puts it in Matthew 5. Verses 29 through 31. He says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. That's kind of the Jesus that we especially sometimes just like to kind of tame, if we're honest. Jesus isn't saying you should physically harm yourself. He's saying you should get serious about the things that cause you to sin. You need to remove them. You need to actually take serious action. Like, are you on offense when you fight your sin, or are you kind of on defense? Like, man, I just got tempted again, so I gave in. I want to call you guys to um, fight your sin in a way that 
is on offense, that you are going just on offense because the grace of God demands that you walk in holiness now. Maybe you need to, to prepare for the next time the enemy is going to tempt you. I don't like how these people I heard about dealt with this problem where college students were driving. This is where I lived growing up. College students were driving and they were coming and I guess while they were like hanging out the window of the driving, they would just swing a baseball bat and just knock a bunch of mailboxes off. Okay, And they were getting tired of this. They were getting tired of their mailboxes getting obliterated. So they took matters into their own hands. They went on offense. Okay, This is what they did. They decided they would add a mailbox kind of in the first slot of this row of mailboxes. They were all together. They would add a mailbox and fill it with concrete. They went on offense. Okay. They were tired of just kind of having this thing happen over and over and over again to them. And so, I mean, probably a broken wrist or two. I don't know exactly what happened. But, like, what if, this is how one pastor was putting it the other day. I was listening to, what if you actually put, like, kind of the enemy just back on his butt? Like, seriously, what if, what if you were a problem for Satan? Like, what if you got so serious about waging war, because that's what the Christian life is. It's about like an assault on the gates of hell. Jesus says that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Like we're going against the forces of the enemy. And yet he is coming to us trying to make us believe that God's grace isn't actually that sweet, that pleasing God isn't worth really everything we got. And I think he needs to get some teeth knocked out. You with me? All right. Maybe you need to add another line of defense. That's kind of what I'm saying. You need to put a mailbox up with some concrete because you need another line of defense. I don't know what that line of defense is for you personally. It it actually might be like something you need to work out with someone close to you that you, you know gets you and knows your struggles. What's that going to be? What's that going to look like? I mean, do you, do you need to cut something out of your life for the sake of obeying Jesus? Paul's talking about the fact that grace has appeared once, and then there's this another mention of an appearing. Look at verse 13. It says, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Like, there's another appearing of Jesus coming, and he's coming that time. He will come. Surely he will come, and he will come in power, and every knee is going to bow because of who he is, because he's the king. He's the risen king. We need to be ready. Like, we do not know when Jesus is coming back. No one knows when Jesus is coming back, but I'm asking you, are you ready for Jesus to come back? And I want to remind you that that's also a beautiful future to look forward to. That's kind of the next movement in this part of our verses tonight, that we have a blessed hope. 
I don't know if you would describe yourself as someone that, that has hope, but Christians have always been a people of hope, even in terrible circumstances. It's one of the things that's just who we are because of our Savior. We have hope. We have a blessed hope or a happy hope. We have this beautiful inheritance waiting for us. We have a hope in heaven that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And it's all going to be kicked off when Jesus returns in glory. And this is something that is so beautiful, you guys. Look, verse 14 says, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You are God's possession, Christian. Like you are his prized possession. He bought you with a price. This is an amazing statement of worth about you because God says so. All of this is something that Titus is supposed to declare. He's supposed to stand firm on this because this is all such serious stuff. Like, this is truth. That if you're in Christ, not only are you a new creation, but you're God's possession. You need to live a holy life because he is working in you. You need to live a holy life because he died to make you his. And he is the one who wants to purify you. God gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. He didn't give his life for people who had it all together. He gave his life for people who were lawless or who literally lived as if, if there was no God in the world. If, he lived, if we lived like we had it all together, we would be fooling ourselves, you guys. We still need to be purified daily by this God who loved us and gave himself up for us. Do you look to your future hope as motivation for your holiness? Like, do you, do you look to your future hope even just for um, kind of encouragement? Do you look to your future hope to give you the power to say no to sin? Do you preach this gospel of grace and this future appearing of Jesus to give you power to say no to sin? Like, I want to remind you tonight that you have a beautiful future. You have a beautiful inheritance, and it's God. Like, he is the one who is in heaven. He's the one that died to ransom you, and you belong to him. We actually need to incorporate this future hope into our training, I think. Like, this is all tied together that we are to train. Like, we're to get serious. We're to put in effort because of grace. It's a gospel-motivated, grace-motivated effort to obey God, to train for godliness. And it leads us also into thinking about our future hope, to meditating on our future hope. Maybe you need to, to actually just mine the scriptures and find some verses to memorize to start 
meditating on, to start writing and putting in places that you'll see it often to give you just a, a reminder to dwell on your future hope in Jesus. But not only do you have an, an unimaginable standing with God because of his grace past tense, you have this ongoing work in your life of the Holy Spirit making you holy or purifying you. You're his possession. You're bought with a price. Past tense. Nothing can change that. And now it's your responsibility to, to invite God and to have this posture of God work in me, make me more like Jesus every day. You could say God's grace saves us, but it does more than it just than just saving us. There's this ongoing kind of progressive work of grace in our lives, producing godly living and a future hope. So you could say God's grace saves us, produces godly living, and a future hope. God's grace saves us, produces godly living, and a future hope. You guys, four things. If you're taking notes, I just want to, again, make really clear. I want to put some kind of practical things on. One is to renounce persistent sin or to have this attitude change, to hate it. Maybe that looks like just getting honest and doing business with God tonight. And first, repenting, turning from those sins to himself, to God himself. Like if you're going to renounce persistent sin, if you're going to renounce sin that maybe you've never really decided to bring into the light before, that's going to take courage. Like maybe you need to pull someone aside that you know loves Jesus, that actually you can trust that they will remind you of grace. But if you're a saved person, this is who you are. You're someone who is marked by renouncing sin, hating sin. Second is, is to train for godliness. Those things go together. You don't just renounce sin and then just somehow not do anything. No, you train for godliness. Training takes effort. It takes actual, it takes a plan. Like it takes some, it takes some work on your end to figure out what, what do I need to do? How can, how can I actually best create some rhythms in my life to train for godliness? Not because that's what I need for God to be pleased with me, but I need to train for godliness. Train. I need to be taught by God's grace every day. God's word is a lamp to our feet when it comes to training us and teaching us. Third thing is just to remember that you're God's possession. Like you belong to God. That's who you are. Maybe you need to be honest with the fact that it's hard to believe that. Like, I don't know about you, but sometimes for me, it's, it's actually difficult to feel like I'm really secure. And yet, that's exactly when I don't want to share that, but that's when I actually need someone to remind me of the gospel most. And then fourth, look, share the gospel with all kinds of people. Because Jesus died to ransom a a bride, a people for, from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So maybe grace is actually 
becoming way more clear to you tonight for the first time. Maybe what God has done in Christ is more beautiful, and that's God at work in your life. Like, I just, I want to call you to put your trust in Jesus. If tonight that is going on in your life, to put your trust in Jesus. Like, who would we be, Salt Company? If God's grace shaped us and trained us to be holy, to be a people that reflect God, who would we be if we had this type of great hope awaiting our Savior's return? I want us to, to ponder just for a minute if we were to every day look to our future hope, to look to the return of Jesus when he comes to usher us into heaven where there will be no more sin and brokenness and death and pain. When we will be with God forever and nothing will actually ever separate us from his presence, from his love. We'll see him face to face. So look to your blessed hope for motivation to be faithful because the grace of God has appeared. It's been proclaimed to you and now it needs to be proclaimed to other people. It needs to be brought to people who don't have hope. Like this, this is a passage that is dripping with, with gospel truth that 35 minutes isn't going to just do the trick. This is a passage that I want you to turn over in your mind. That the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for you and for me. God's grace is the thing we need every day. Let's pray. God, We desperately want to cherish your grace. We know that we so often are guilty of just cheapening your grace. And I pray that you would help us to see the, the cost that you gave yourself. You gave yourself for us when we were far off, when we were lawless. God, would your grace teach us? Would your spirit change us and help us to desire to be to be a people who are faithful a people who turn from sin and say yes to what is good and pleasing to you thank you that you alone save that 
your grace is sufficient, that your grace is never ending. We love you and we pray this in your name. Amen.